Hello, this is Brian McCormick welcoming you to another edition of the Leadership Podcast Series from the Resource for Leaders, LeaderNetwork.org. Our National Leader of the Month is Ira Chalif. Ira is an author and executive coach whose work on followership merits our attention. He has delivered his insights to his clients throughout the United States and has also pursued his passion for offering his wisdom to other cultures throughout the world, including to such noted audiences as the Senate of Nigeria and the Parliament of Sierra Leone. For this month's feature, Ira offered a wide variety of insights into leadership and followership. Afterwards, he responded to some questions that followed his written responses. Specifically, Ira provided additional insight into his thoughts on followership, talked about how aspiring leaders can make the transfer from the lessons they read in books to the real world, described how different cultures respond to his thoughts on followership, and offered thoughts on encouraging versus stifling leadership. Enjoy the insights that follow from our National Leader of the Month, Ira Chalif. As we begin our conversation, Ira is discussing followership, a topic he is well known for as the author of The Art of Followership and The Courageous Follower. Brian, as you are aware, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of books written on the very important subject of leadership. But there's very little that has been written on the subject of followership. Yet the one thing that leaders need in order to lead is someone following them. So followership and leadership are both part of the same process. And we honor leaders, but in our culture we've tended to disparage followers. And I think that's because we misconstrue the, the, uh, that follower is a personality type. It's not. Follower is a conscious role. It's a commitment to work with a leader towards a common goal. And when we conceive of the follower role in that way, we see that it's a very honorable role, and it's a role that contains power as well. So the subject of followership is how do we occupy the follower role with power, with responsibility, and in a way that supports leadership, but also makes sure that leaders are using their power well. Because as we know, power can tend to distort behavior. And a leader needs people around him or her who will help him use power well and also help them correct themselves. So my work on followership is about how, when you're occupying the follower role, do you do it with grace, with strength, and with courage. You may also, at the same, at the same time, be a leader as well, but we tend to move between a leader role and a follower role, 
And when we're in the foul role, there are a certain uh, set of behaviors and attitudes and courage that's needed to do that role well. So that's what the subject of followership is about, and I'm very pleased to say that over the last few years it's begun to garner the attention it deserves, and there are now several important books on the subject and quite a few articles that just didn't exist even a few years ago. Absolutely. And when you talk about books, you have your influential book on followership as well. Could you mention that a little bit? Well, my original book is called The Courageous Follower, subtitle Standing Up To and For Our Leaders. And again, that book came out of my perceptions that we needed to think more about how to perform the follower role. In, In fact, it grew directly out of some work by M. Scott Peck, who wrote a book called People of the Lie. He also wrote The Road Less Traveled, which many people are familiar with. It's a terrific book. In People of the Lie, he examined the My Lai Massacre, and he asked, how is it that ordinary American citizens, when they were in the role of soldier or follower to their uh, the lieutenant who was leading them, how could they have abrogated their own sense of ethical responsibility and participate in what was later proved to be uh, a massacre and then a cover-up. And he observed that something happens when people see themselves in a follower role where they cease to assume the full responsibility we always need to assume as ethical, moral beings. And that began a journey for me of exploring why is that and how can we do the follower role differently. Since then, more recently, last year, I also co-edited a book called The Art of Followership, How Great Followers Make Great Leaders and Organizations. And that is a collection of writing on the subject of followership by eminent scholars and practitioners, again, adding to the body of literature in this area, which has really up till now been underserved in terms of both academic research and practitioner focus. Well said. Uh, One more thing that uh, I'd like to say about leadership and developing leadership is that many people observe that working closely with leaders is one of the important ways of learning about leadership. So many aspiring leaders don't start off, of course, as the leader. Rather, they start off in a more or less an apprentice role of some sort. And then they find their own voice, their own vision, and become leaders themselves in in their own right. And my work is very much centered around as an executive coach, as well as a speaker and and, uh, author, about how do we do both roles well. So I'm also interested in how do we develop the leadership qualities in people.
terrific. You had talked about some of the books that you recommend for aspiring leaders. I'm wondering if you could discuss the level of effectiveness that you have found with clients utilizing books that they have read to improve their performance. And, and I'm wondering, how do you get people to go from the academic level to real-world effective practice of leadership? Are there any lessons that you would offer to people looking to make that transfer? Well, it's a very good question. We all know that you don't learn something directly from a book. What you do is let the information, perspectives, experience that the author or authors of a book are transmitting into your own mental universe and start comparing your own experiences with the experiences and vision that the authors are describing. And I think there's a certain almost mysterious process to how we learn and how we grow. In my own coaching work, for example, when I have someone who is motivated to grow, both in their leadership role and in their followership role, we have conversations about how they can move from where they are to where they want to eventually be. And one of the ways we enrich those conversations is by suggesting a book that's very tailored to that individual's needs, temperaments, goals. And the reason that I find that effective is once an individual knows generally how they want to grow if you expose them to other sources of thinking that would help them understand how they might get to where they want to be, a almost subconscious process starts to happen. I don't know what in a specific book they will specifically walk away with, but there will often be one or two important points that gel because they're ready for that lesson to gel. You know, we can also go back to uh, Plutarch, you know, uh, who wrote the lives of the great uh, Greeks and Romans, and he did that as a way to help contemporary leaders learn lessons from other people's experiences, failures, and successes with leadership. I think it's wise for a leader in our, uh, let me call it, uh, literate culture to expose themselves one way or another through, through books, through the kind of interviews that you capture, to a range of leadership experience, behaviors, suggestions, so that they can take what is meaningful and important to them and incorporate it into their own becoming a leader. They can't copy what's in a book, but they can integrate the experiences of others into their own experience and their own voice and accelerate their development as a leader or as a courageous follower. Well said. That I mean, 
mean, I think you put that in a very, uh, it's very insightful the way you describe that. And I, I'm curious, you also, in our written por portion of the feature, you talked about your passion and your dream and how that was around getting courageous followership into as many cultures as possible. And you've already talked for us about why courageous followership is so important and, and maybe gotten the term followership into people's vocabulary. So I'm wondering, when you talk about followership and how the goal is to get it into many different cultures in the world, are some cultures better conditioned for followership? Are there some cultures that are difficult to uh, to take this model and, or this construct, and is it difficult to implement that model in certain cultures? Could you talk about that a little? It's a great question. Uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, my book, The Courageous Follower, has been translated into at least a half a dozen different languages and more are coming out this this year. It's interesting that it's actually difficult to translate the concept of followership into other languages easily. Each language and culture has a lot of connotations attached to the different words for followers that are not necessarily what we want to convey. So it's been somewhat of, of a challenge. For example, the, the Chinese translation um, actually reads Dances with Leaders, <laughs> huh. How to Be a Courageous Follower. And I asked, well, why would they change it so uh, significantly from the English title, which was The Courageous Follower Standing Up to and For Our Leaders, and I was told, well, in China, you can't say standing up to your leaders. That would be unacceptable culturally. Wow. So you have to frame it differently. The Australians, I think, were the culture that most readily resonated with courageous followership. I think there's a certain, oh, maybe a little bit of rebellious energy in the Australian <laughs> culture <laughs> that identified with not being overly subservient to leaders, which uh, I, you know I, I applaud. At the same time, you know when when you read the book, you'll find that I very much uh, focus on building supportive relationships with leaders, not not being uh, casting yourself in a rebellious role, but neither in a subservient role. So the Australian culture was was a very interesting one. I've also found that segments of our own culture where you might think the concept was would not be well-received, in fact, it's been very well-received. For example, in um, law enforcement work, we know that in law enforcement work, the chain of command is very, very important. And, uh, you know, compliance is very important. And yet, at the same time, um, the law enforcement community recognizes that when you give the power of the state to an individual in the form of a firearm, they have to be completely responsible for their use of that. And if they get an order that is not compliant with the law or, or ethics, 
they have to know how to stand up and say no to that order. So I've been very pleased to see that the uh, California Police Department at almost all levels have incorporated courageous follower training into their sergeant-level programs. And again, it's, it's not just to know when not to obey, but that's very important, but also how to create the kind of relationships with superiors where real dialogue can occur so that if something is um, transpiring that isn't right, the individual in the follow role can effectively bring it to the attention of the leader so the leader can correct it or self-correct as needed. I think the exception, you, you, when you ask other cultures where it would be difficult to introduce this, there's an assumption in the, in the book, largely, that we're in a non-totalitarian culture. In a true totalitarian culture, the act of speaking up directly to authority actually, of course, will often contain life and death consequences. Sure. So I suggest in the book, you know, where those lines are, where these principles would have to be adapted to the brutal realities of those cultures. But most of us, fortunately, live in more normative cultures, and we can and should exercise our ethical accountability uh, in relation to authority when it's appropriate to do so. Absolutely. Another question I have is, I was interested in your comments about the distorting effects of the practice of rewarding making the numbers without caring how they are made. Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. You know, we're seeing the effects of it as we speak, for example, with all of the the problems in our economy now and in our financial system because these firms that were reporting you know, mega profits and taking home mega bonuses, and then we find that it was all a house of cards, and so many people have gotten hurt. It's a, it's, it's a special, it creates a special difficulty in the follower-leader relationship. It goes like this. In, in, when a leader appears to be extraordinarily successful, it becomes very difficult to suggest that they need to examine what they're doing or correct themselves. It becomes difficult not just for a subordinate to make that suggestion. It even becomes difficult for a board member uh, who, the, who the leader is legally accountable to to make that suggestion because you appear to be looking a gift horse in the mouth. This person is so successful and everybody's, you know, doing well and making good money or in a nonprofit sector, raising some uh, metric that's very important, like the number of uh, students graduating high school on time, etc. Sure. But what happens is that if you tie rewards or penalties too closely to the metric, then there is a pressure on the 
executives and the staff report to them to look good, and they start to cut corners in how they either achieve the, 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 the result or how they report the result. And they find ways, unfortunately, to game the system. And at that point, we cease to have good data upon which to actually manage. The reason we want good metrics is so we know where we are in relation to our goals and how to either reinforce what's working well or how to correct what's not working well. But when the numbers themselves are actually false representations, we can't manage. Almost in every major disaster that occurs, there are always people somewhere in the organization who understood that something was not right. They even often saw exactly what was wrong. But they have a great difficulty getting anyone to pay attention because it seems that the leadership is so successful. And it's only after the the crash and the exposure of the fraud or, or the mismanagement that it comes to light that there were people who were trying to correct the situation and avert the consequences. So it's not an easily solvable problem. In my book, The Courageous Follower, I do talk more about the options available when an individual is encountering this kind of potential ethical dilemma. But it takes, um, it's extremely, extremely sensitive and, and challenging to actually make a positive difference in that kind of situation. But so as a society, I think we have to revisit um, how enamored we are of quarterly profit statements and, and, and other metrics that then create this kind of distortion in the behavior of those responsible for the production. Or we're going to keep uh, having the kinds of very serious failures that we see occurring right now. Good questions. Well, when you talk about that problem you've identified with, I guess one could say, the focus only on the end and not necessarily the means to get there. Could you make the connection between that and your earlier thoughts on followership and explain how exactly what types of followership need to come into play in order to try to make that change in our culture and in our society uh, from some of the, I guess you could say, disasters or, or financial um, hardship that has been felt from people solely focusing on that end result and not looking at the means that were used to get there? Sure. Important question. There are a lot of things we can do at a technical and a legal level and should do. But I'd like to use your question to look more deeply into our, our culture itself. We're obviously, as human beings, we're obviously social creatures. 
we organize ourselves all the time into families, clubs, groups, churches, states, nations, whatever. And it's this organization, this social coordination and cooperation that permit ourselves to develop the universities and corporations, etc., that allow the human species to do the great, marvelous things we do, but also the terrible things that we do. And in order to have a, a, a complex society like we have, we have to become and teach our children to become social creatures. And to do that, we need to socialize them. And unfortunately, in doing this, and we do need to do it, but in doing this, we place such great emphasis on compliance with authority, you know, right from preschool onwards. And unfortunately, unimpeachable experiments have demonstrated the result of this is that two-thirds of us when asked or told by authority to do something, even when we believe it's the wrong thing to do, even when we believe it will create pain and suffering in others, we will comply because it's coming from authority. Hmm. And we need to find ways at the earliest education levels to balance the legitimate need to socialize uh, our children with an equally ingrained capacity and values for caring for other human beings to the, to the degree that we will resist authority if authority is asking us to do something that is not right, that is harmful, hurtful, or potentially dangerous. That's a great, great project that will take at least a couple of generations to do if we can ever achieve it. But I hope that we can find ways to effectively do that, as I think it will make a fundamental difference in the capacity of the human race to do, continue to do the great things we do, but to really grow out of our equal capacity to do terrible things, which we all intellectually reject, emotionally reject, but somehow continue to happen in the world. So that's my big picture dream. Well, I think that's a, a terrific dream, and I think you've identified very well the challenge in that dream, and also a terrific you know, basic roadmap that if it could be implemented, and if people turn their attention to that, like you said, it won't be easy and it won't be quick. But I certainly agree with you that the end result of what you have suggested will, will be of great ben benefit to us all. Well, thank you, Brian, and thank you for what you're doing to help those of us who think deeply about leadership and followership to convey our thinking to others who are also interested. Well, thank you again, Ira, for your wisdom and for sharing your thoughts today. That concludes the podcast with National Leader of the Month, Ira Chalup.